2065. Professor Zaida Abdullah hates the smell of the blue chemical gel that now fills the carriage. It smells like petroleum, and she hates the way it feels on her wrinkled skin, more like burning than cooling. But she slaps it on anyway and watches her body temperature dip slightly on her wrist monitor. She leaves a voice note for her faculty secretary to let the students know she'll be late for the lecture. A man has started pacing anxiously, and everyone watches him with trepidation. She's seen this kind of behavior before, the way it spreads like a multiplying algorithm. These train disruptions don't usually last very long, but even ten short minutes in a boiler room like this can have devastating effects. She feels her stomach twist slightly at the thought of what happened in Spain last year during their 50-degree summer. A traffic jam had killed more than a hundred people. She blames the blue gel. If everyone could just sweat freely, they'd feel better, feel less stuck. Like her late mother, she's convinced that this slick of coolant on the body blocks the flow of energy. She wishes now she'd had some ginger candy to chew on, to release some wind. She looks at the map of the train line. They're only at Tiongbaru. If this keeps up, she might have to give the lecture remotely from this train. She bristles at the thought. She likes the presence of her students. She likes the communality, the gentle flow of energy they share as they sit around and discuss the saddening affairs of the current moment. She feels it is important to transfer the soft, murky feelings that swirl about her mind to their generation. Alternating between despair and rapture, love and guilt. Maybe young people can make some sense of it. Like many of her generation, who've seen the before and after, this murkiness of vision is all she has left. And so, in the past five years, these classes have become a sort of talking cure for her in her old age, and the students, sensing that, seem to have adopted her like a grandmother. Which is to say nothing about the course. Literature of the late Anthropocene, where they mostly read and watch media from the turn of the century. The course, she thinks, is very good, which is also why they come. She's been delivering it for decades now, and like all courses, it has waxed and waned. Early in her career at the university, the course had been popular among a lefty set, not much younger than she was at the time. Many of them became Green Party politicians, and she'll always remember their sad, defeated faces, election after election, each loss becoming more absurd, given the escalating crisis. Eventually, the crisis tipped past the point of no return, and the course fell out of fashion. The things she talked about, climate guilt, climate grief, the aesthetics of radical hope, sincerity, got washed away, like most of the humanities department, in a wave of new science evangelicalism. 
too soft, too introspective, too indulgent of the inner world, they'd said of her research and teaching interests. The department had turned to writing papers about the imaginative architecture of speculative fiction. The more excitable of them even moved to call it prophetic fiction. Everyone wanted to be useful, even professors of literature. Now the thermal floor was so high that without the blue gel, most people ran the risk of rapid dehydration and debilitating sunstroke. And then there were the horrible scenes from the Pacific Islands, where, overnight, a whole people lost their home under water. And so the mood has once again turned in Zaida's favor, towards a gentler contemplation, a dynamic mourning, a preparation for death, all of which she intimated gently, coaxing students to pour themselves into their reading, to be kind and forgiving readers of the shameful generation, that they may forgive, in the end, themselves. The students now come in droves again, meditating over the literary excess of forty years ago, its arrogance, its absurdity, its love of irony. But also the way this culture of depressed hedonists lovingly tended to their emotional world, navigated their dark insides, got under their own skin. Too little, too late. She hears the carriage quieten. The A.I. must have manipulated the ambient sound in the train. She senses the light, static buzz of white noise. This small comfort washes over everyone in the carriage, and the pacing man calms himself and sits down. He holds his head in his hands and strikes his thumbs rhythmically against his temples. It's very likely he has severe tinnitus. Two in five people do nowadays, an unexpected consequence of the world's changing air pressure. She feels sorry for him, living with that kind of perpetual torment, a memento mori buzzing in his head. She tries to slow her breathing, focusing on the white noise. She's surprised to hear birds calling. The A.I. must have put on a nature track. Zyda cannot remember the last bird call she heard that wasn't played off a digital archive. Because there were fewer and fewer birds and insects humming in the wild, the ambient noise floor of the world had gone inaudible. This saddens her, and she thinks of the singing budgie her grandfather once kept in his flat in Badok. It had sounded delirious with joy, though of course... Today this memory of the bird in the rattan cage is shot through with darkness. She has always been fascinated that the catastrophe should be played out in these quiet sonic phenomena. One an intolerable whining in the head, the other a global decrescendo. The human being's inner life hums with shame and panic, but nature itself goes out, as most things do, with a sigh and a whimper. A flurry of strange noises interrupts her thoughts. A thud and a scraping and a flapping of what sounds like wings. Zaida turns to see a small, 
black bird stuttering about on the train floor. It must have flown in through the window. As the shock of this subsides, Zida sees that its feathers have fallen out in many places, and underneath she sees patches of reddened skin. The bird is lying on its side, its beak gaping like a fish's mouth. Where it landed, with great impact, the bird's beak seems slightly bent, and it seems miraculous at all that it has survived the crash. It's too weak to get up, but strong enough to flap intermittently about on the floor, which sends the people in the carriage recoiling. A strange noise, between a croak and a squeak, emerges from the bird's tiny body, and Zyda realizes it must be screaming for water. She rummages in her bag for a bottle and goes over to the bird, which panics and starts to grope its way across the floor, dragging a small patch of blood with it. Zyda notices one of its wings is bent. Calmly, she tuts and hushes. She pours some water into the palm of her hand and puts it gently by the bird's head, a suggestion of aid. The bird eyes wide with terror, doesn't know what to do. Zyda repeats her suggestion, splashing some water on the bird. Slowly, the bird, convinced, turns its head towards Zyda's palm and takes water greedily into its mouth. Good bird. Zyda turns to look out the window and her heart sinks to see the dusty, yellow air and the browning trees, an upside-down autumnal scene. This poor bird, circumnavigating the island, must have been delirious with suffering. The air, sandy with Chinese desert winds blown south, must have been like sandpaper against its body. Perhaps, high above, it had seen this train stalled on the tracks and thought it was a river. How horrible to dive into a dream of life-giving water only to end up in this hell, towering giants in a haze of chemical coolant. And this last thought tugs at Zyda's heart, because she sees that both bird and human, equally trapped, inhabit the exact same nightmare. The man with tinnitus seems to intuit the same thing, because he has started pacing again. We're not too different after all, she mutters to the bird, but perhaps also to the man. She thinks how, in the same way this broken bird in her hand has been twisted out of shape, so too has everyone in this cabin slathering gel on their skins to stay alive in a world that has become so desperately inimical. Which is more absurd, a bird seeing a train and thinking it's a river? Or the people on this train mistaking same train for a way forward? The bird, its wing broken and some organ probably punctured beyond salvation, has stopped struggling and seems to settle into a kind of quiet paralysis. Zyda thinks it might be the way she's always had with animals that has brought on this calm, or perhaps it's the bird sounds playing in the train that have lulled the bird into an illusion of home. But 
looking at the bird in her palms, its head turned towards the window and the sky. Zyda realizes the bird is experiencing nothing more complex than surrender, which, of course, is the most difficult thing of all, she thinks, and the most unhuman of traits. She knows the bird is quickly dying, Something elemental about the ebbing away of its life has now become fused with hers. She knows she must attend to this and see it through. A part of her thinks, with birds so few in number, wouldn't it be better to try and save it? She brushes this voice aside gently and lays the bird in the bed of her lap. The other people in the train perhaps overcome with the uncanny familiarity of the bird's suffering, have turned away to focus on the interminable stuckness of the train. The man with tinnitus has sat back down, but is now rocking in his seat. Zyda brushes these people aside too, and focuses on the bird, which has become the most important thing in this moment. Who are you? She waves the device on her wrist over the bird and asks the internet for an answer, which comes swift in the speaker in her ear. Asian Coel. A pang of great, morbid pity strikes Zyda's heart. The memory of her youth is haunted by the Asian Coel and its two-note song, which would rouse her from sleep and mark the end of every day. People had found it annoying, but she loved the way it seemed to question time angrily. That's it? That's it? In a country of private manners, something about the bird's call, so audacious and insistent and piercing, pointed to a world far above human affairs, which of course was never true, because it was the world of human affairs that made the sky yellow, and dried up the earth, and that eventually made unwilling participants of even the birds who had fallen from the sky in droves, or simply stopped being born. Zyda knows they must have been declining for a long time, but compared to the eagles and the herons, this bird was insignificant enough for its extinction to be overlooked. It hadn't been, though, not in the ways that matter. Because while most people in her generation had a different point of reference for when it had happened, most of them remember a morning when they first realized the Coel had gone silent. There is almost never anything remarkable about that morning. Nothing dramatic. Not a death or a wedding or a festival. Perhaps they'd woken up to pee, or had stayed up all night working, or had been on a bus to school. The memory is unconscious, of the brain expecting to be hit with that familiar two-tone melody, but hearing nothing. As if the human brain called out in song, and was ignored. As if the Coels, like so many other birds, had simply abandoned the earth, leaving only silence where once there was a great chorus 
Obviously, Zyder thinks, the truth of their disappearance is much more gory, to do with burning and suffocation and crashing into buildings. Less an abandonment than a quiet genocide. She returns her attention to the Coel in her lap, who is now barely breathing. Zyder taps the device on her wrist and says, Play. Quietly at first, then more confidently, the cry of the Coel starts to play from her device. The sound travels through the carriage and works an ancient magic over the people trapped within. Few, she thinks, will know it, and those who do will heed its call to some kind of prayer. In this case, a mourning prayer. Her eyes are trained on the bird, who, hearing the call of another long-gone Coel, has closed its eyes. It is too weak to return the call, but perhaps it hears in the song something known only to Coels, about thresholds and crossing them, about the fundamental wisdom of surrender, about permission to go and to return to rest, whatever it hears in the song, it heeds it. After the bird stops breathing, Zyda lets the cry play out for a few more minutes, knowing somewhere deep inside her that the song is carrying the bird away. She intuits, in a catastrophic part of her, that this might be one of the very last coels, if not the last. Even if it isn't, it is one of a dying race, and she will probably never see another Coel again. And so, for her benefit perhaps more than anything, she lets the call ring out, this dead language that used to galvanize the entire island towards the future. And perhaps in thanks for this ritual, a boon is granted because the train shudders and comes back to life. The people inside, still held by the spell of the bird's song, are gently shaken out of it. They return to themselves and make noises of relief that they get to carry on with their day. Zyda, momentarily, is airborne. Her mind is high above the train, which does indeed look like a river. She circles around the earth, which is unrecognizable to the deep ancestral parts of her tiny bird's brain. The lines are different. Even the map of the sky has changed. But she's going somewhere new now, and pays no mind to these broken coordinates. The strange river below has started to flow forward, charging west. She thinks, no, it was not a river, but a dark place of land-bound creatures licking fatal wounds. Never mind them. Zyder soars higher, and the river grows smaller. From this high up, she sees what no one else can, 
that the river is really going in circles, spinning downwards like a whirlpool, deeper and deeper into darkness. All of the earth seems to be draining away. She brushes this thought aside. It is no longer relevant. She turns her eyes up towards the sky at the sun, which is red and fiery like her own eyes. The sun smiles at her. With its light, it sings to her. For the first time in a long time, she finds the words to greet it. I'm here. I'm here. Don't look back, the sun says. She does not, and why would she? The flow of everything is upwards and away. And this, she understands with a brilliant clarity, is the fate of all of her kind, to leave the earth behind and fly into the sun. And so she surrenders to the updraft, to the divine pull of the red star. She lets it coax the song out of her breast, and she calls out joyfully, I'm here, I'm here, flying higher and higher until she is finally and utterly out of time.